0: That you donated it. Gavin's in Vegas. Sure. It's okay. Why oh, the heck not? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's how it works. Here we go. All right. We have our former, I want to stress that. Former jewel thief turned author and podcaster. I want to make sure I'm getting this right. It's Brian Soboliski. All right. Nailed it. Got it. Welcome to the show. Welcome to peace Sorry, traffic is such a beatdown today. It's all right. I'm from Boston. This So this not, you can live with it, not that uh, bad? Well, there's always traffic. There's
1: never not traffic since the tea party. Since we dumped tea in the harbor. I wasn't sure We've if you meant the political traffic. movement or that. Yeah, I gotcha. All right. A lot, of, with the a lot of buggy
2: traffic back I've then. been looking forward to this. this is, oh, this is fantastic. This is
3: interesting to me.
1: Okay.
0: And we'll start the conversation. We only got a few minutes, and then we'll carry over the conversation, if that is good with you. Uh, I'm not here to run things, man. This is your show. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad that you're falling in line. Is, <laughs> it is First, can you tell us about at least the one book I know about, and the podcast, and then obviously we'll backtrack from there.
1: Okay. Um, I actually have written five books. Uh, The first book is called Family Jewels, and it was uh, a book that I wrote. It was a memoir, and I don't know if you guys remember James Frey who wrote A Million Little Pieces. Yeah. Okay, so this guy wrote this memoir, and had a couple sensational parts of his memoir. He went to rehab. He said that he got dental work without... without Novocaine, which wasn't true. He said he crashed a cop car and beat up a cop, which wasn't true. Uh, So he he got on Oprah. Oprah called it her book of the month, and he sold billions of copies. And then everybody found out that he lied. And then he went on Larry King. And Larry King, it's the only time I've ever seen a show go over. So Larry King was supposed to end at 8. He went to 8.07 because Oprah hadn't called in yet, and people stopped their shows for Oprah. Yeah. And Oprah basically said, I forgive him. You know, it doesn't matter that he lied. The story's the same. I like the book. And then her fans sent her billions of emails saying, Oprah, all you've ever said is don't lie. So what's up? So she put James Frey on her stage and ripped him a new one. I
0: remember that. And everyone thought it was kind of shady because all of a sudden she was like, how could you do this to us? She
1: completely switched because because Oprah is run by her fans. So then she puts uh, James Frey up. She puts his publicist, I think she put his cleaning lady, um, like everybody associated with the book and screamed at them all. And then now there wasn't a single agent that would touch my book.
0: And I didn't lie about any of it. Yeah. But the perception was, if this dude did it, it could be across the board. Is that... Does the podcast give you a great outlet then because you know like you were not as likely to be stifled or like you can be distributed however you want to be distributed?
1: Way better. And and it's a way better. It it allowed me to really tell the story, tease out every single robbery. I had to sit down and try to think of every detail of 22 robberies. So in the middle of season two, I get my dad in on it. So my dad is recorded on phone calls. It might not be the best audio because I couldn't. I'm not going to sit down and do a podcast studio with my 78-year-old dad. But he would do calls, and you can, A, tell how proud he was of the fact that we robbed 22 jewelry stores right. over five years. He was like, it was the best thing we ever did. And I was like, Dad, well, why didn't you just do it yourself? And he's like, well, you know, I needed people. I needed help. And who else should I help but my sons? Um, it's crazy. You actually hear him say these words. Um, so back to the book and to your original question, because I
0: do have ADD, and I can't really f- um, well I will let me pause you let no. me pause you there then we do have to go to break but we set the stage the books the podcast the 22 robberies <laughs> let's get into how that started how it went we will do that next as we enter our number 12 of Peaceathon and, Bobby, I want to thank you very much. I know in addition to doing all of your Cowboys insider work, NFL work, jumping on now with Sean and RJ, you still took the time to jump on the show, and you helped us raise money. I appreciate it, Thank
2: man. you. Just one more time, I need him to call me Baseball Insider. Baseball Insider. My name, please. Robert Bell. Together. As a full we need sentence, the money. baseball insider Robert Belt. There we go. The baseball insider Bobby Belt. See, that's you. It wasn't just you. Could not have I just think said my Robert name is a fantastic name. Is that oh not gosh. your name? All right, this it sounds is. like an
0: off-air conversation. We they will pursue that. We will pursue our insight into the jewel robbery game. We'll do it next right here on the fan. Can't see Masterpiece back here on 105 Through the Fan. It is our number 12 of the ninth annual Peace-a-thon. peace of. thon peace a on. I wanted, to give you, I wanted to give you a quick update and tell you my goals and dreams. Last year, we raised $44,000 for my possibilities. We are now above $40,000. My goal is to get above $50,000. I still think that is accomplishable via the donations in the auction, so if you know anybody that is interested in any of our cool stuff or to donate to an amazing organization like My Possibilities, please pass on the word 1053thefan.com. Oh, we got some donation money right there. I
1: have $21 I of mu- crisp bills. You might right. have to that give works. them
0: to Adrian. We are Who's probably Adrian? not legally all right. allowed to take that money. So you're the one is. that's
1: going to be indicted when all of this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, to go just go wash the money, we'll be fine. <laughs> to go along with that, Corey thinks you put it in the actual washing machine, is 1053thefan.com slash Peaceathon. For the 469, we have skeptical people around here. That's the way the world works. No way this guy is a real jewel thief, although oh, the follow-up is, what are the podcasts and books he's got? Because I would love to look them up. The <laughs> okay. book I saw is Family Jewels. I believe that is the name of the podcast as
1: yeah. well. Well, this uh, Gene Simmons is still uh, ruling over the Family Jewels title. So when you okay. look me up for a podcast, you're going to get a lot of uh, Gene Simmons. Uh, keep scrolling
0: because uh, and if you want it, I did Family Jewels podcast instead of just Family Jewels. Just a weird cross promote. Derek Holland has one of his game used kiss cleats that is autographed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, like right there, I, right I know there, it there, would be unlikely <laughs> that I could cross promote, but I can 100 percent cross promote that. All right. So, Brian, Brilliant. what I got to know is we go take me all the way back to the beginning what led you to the place where you were like, "This is a thing I can do, or would like to try"? Oh, or uh, have to never. Try. I
1: never. I'm going to tell you something. As, as I sit, so I went. I went away when I was 20 years old, which means when I stood in front of a judge, I was an adult. I made my own decisions. Um, so at no point could I say, "Oh no, uh, poor me." I was indoctrinated into this lifestyle, um, but. When my dad came home, he presented the first robbery as I invested a bunch of money with this guy who was supposed to import diamonds into the country. And at the time, the early 90s, there were only four companies out there that were importing and exporting fine jewelry like diamonds and gold. And one of them was called Citra. And they had this catalog of jewelry. Like it, was, it was like a, a Neiman Marcus catalog back when they were catalogs. And uh, basically, they sent out jewelry salesmen to go to mom-and-pop places. So there were very few chain jewelry stores back then. So you'd, you'd, these guys would drive around, and to be insured to carry that much jewelry, you basically had to appease the insurance company by creating an armored car. So a lot of the guys that we went after kept all of the real stuff in their car, and all of the stuff that they would bring into the store was brass and glass. So there was one robbery that we literally got a six cases full of brass and glass. Um, very disappointing day. Yeah. Uh, but when dad came home and he presented it as, hey, guys, I think you're going to have to come out of college. Both my brother and I were going to Plymouth State College at the time. Uh, that was the time that uh, Playboy had voted it the number three school in the country for partying. So yep. please take from that what you will. I did right. not learn a thing when I went to Plymouth <laughs> State Sure. College. But uh, when we came home, uh, it was pres- basically presented to us as uh, your entire life is going to change unless you help me out. And if you don't help me out, you got to come out of college. And and uh, I don't remember mulling it over. I don't remember calling my priest. I don't remember calling somebody for advice. I was just like, Dad's in trouble. Let's do this. So we did it. And it was successful. A couple days before Christmas of that year, I was behind the garage of a man I'd never met before with my brother. The, and you could look at me, man. My brother was 250 pounds. I'm 150 pounds. Yeah, you're pounds. not the biggest person in the <laughs> no, world. No, no, no. So a lot of people would be like, hey, did you have a gun for the robberies? And I was like, well, look at me. <sighs> my brother's 250 pounds. If he asks you for all of your stuff, you're going to be like, okay, here, have it. Mm-hmm. You're going to look at me and you're going to be like, hey, maybe I think I can take you. So no, you can't have my stuff. So yes, I had a gun. That being said, Kev's job was, because of his size, was to go out, subdue the person, and I was supposed to get the case. It's an easy job, Right. First time I go to grab the case, the guy wasn't giving it up because he knew what was in it. So Kev had to, my brother had to hit him a little bit harder and a little bit more. And finally he gave it up and we ran across the highway and hopped in a stolen car that my dad was waiting for us in. And I'll tell you the kicker was, as we drove away, my dad says, hey guys, I don't care what's in that case. I want you to know I love you boys very much. And at that point, I would have robbed the Pope if he asked me. Wow. Yeah. what city was this in? This was in, uh, the first robbery was in Framingham, Massachusetts, right on Route 9, if you know Massachusetts at all. Okay. Um, And we ran across Route 9 to get to my dad sitting in that stolen car. So remorse at that moment did not
0: sound like it was...
1: No, when you go home, like, I went home and, like, we separated. Dad gave me the case and we separated. And I can't tell you how appealing Mexico sounded at that moment. But, um, yeah, that's how I felt. (laughs) (laughs) And I drove home and I opened, like I opened the case and there was nothing in it. There were a couple catalogs. There was some things like the eye thing that the guy uses or the thing to measure f- rings. And um, I opened this little packet. There was this little white packet. And I opened it up and about 15 one carat diamonds hit my kitchen floor. And it it's a wonderful song guys. If you haven't heard it before, <laughs> try it. But I dropped to my knees cuz I knew my dad was going to pull up any minute and I started playing hungry hungry hippos with my hands, yeah. scooping up one carrot diamond so I could get them back in the packet and put them back in the case, but all said and done, we're talking retail. There was about $250,000 in the case, which which um depending on where you where you sell that. And that's the very difficult part cuz now they're laser inscribing. They are certifying diamonds now for whatever that means. Because
0: you were just joking with Corey's son off air, what's the value, what's the street <laughs> yeah, what's value, the street? Right? And so yeah. that, that's to your point no, right there. The, yeah,
1: you walk into any pawn shop and you try to sell something that you paid $800 for, you're lucky to get $200 for it in a pawn shop. When it's stolen, you're talking pennies on the dollar. Right. Now let me tell you what was going on in Massachusetts at the time because I grew up while the Anjulos were running Boston. They were a crime family. They were mobbed up. You can look them up. Look up Anjulo right now. You got a ton of stuff because that's who Whitey Bulger ended up turning in. Oh, wow. So Whitey Bulger, to save his butt and to end up taking over the area, and i got to tell you, the Anjulos ran Boston very well. I loved Boston because there was a three-block section of Boston called the Combat Zone. Oh, there so they are. you can go to the combat zone. You can get strippers. You can get drugs. You can get whatever you want. But take one step off of those three blocks and act like an idiot, and you're gonna get thumped by somebody. Somebody's gonna say, "Nope, that's not the place to do that." Here, go back over there and do it over there. And they ran a really a great city. You, I mean, it was the best Italian food in the North End. Did
2: you have a, You don't yeah, have to yeah. raise your no, hand. No, bro. I was trying to get their attention, <laughs> but I was curious. So, what kind of diamonds is it
1: that you like? Or like all of them. Oh, cool. I gotta tell you just something, though, no, guys. Sure. No, I, I'm just. There's an amazing book called Empire by, uh, um, I forget who wrote it, but it was about De Beers and how how they monopolized the diamond trade on the entire globe. That's really hard to do. But Diamonds aren't rare. They are really are not rare, man. It's
0: just the perceptive it's value that we put. Okay.
1: So, so what's a rare diamond is a flawless diamond. Anywhere outside of that, a diamond is not as rare as, say, an emerald or a Ceylon blue sapphire. Um, those things, man, when you pop one of those out of the earth, you got something. The, wor- the earth worked hard to get that. But diamonds <laughs> are, pre- are pretty regular, man. They're not, they're not that bad. But the markup is insane. So at the time, and I don't know what the jewelry trade is like now, but at the time, it was like the drug trade. It was shady. So all of the guys that we hit, all 22 were guys that had previously claimed false robberies. So we had a kind of a niche. We were kind of like going after people that once they reported the robbery would be investigated themselves. Huh. So nobody started looking at us until like three years in. And okay. again, go ahead. And what was, the,
0: what was the impetus behind the three years later? Like what led to the investigation into y'all then?
1: God, I'll tell you, there, there were two things that worked in our favor. And the second thing I just I feel like a terrible person for saying, but our second robbery... Um, was the Jewel Mart in um, Seabrook, New Hampshire. And somebody had actually come to us the way my dad proposed it and said, hey, these people were ripped off the same way I was ripped off by this guy. If you guys go in and take down the store, all these people want is the money in the safe. And you guys can have the rest of the store. So we hatched a plan to subdue the owner Um, my dad would go in the back and get any videotaping from any security cameras. Cause guys, that was back in video. Like this is where you go to Blockbuster and get videotapes. Right. (laughs) Um, from there, I was going to smash and grab all of the casing in the front and collect that and put it into a bag. And we were going to be out of there in 90 seconds. My dad said, if we are not in and out of a store in 90 seconds, we can't go into the store. So we go into the store and we cased it for like two weeks. Casing is basically just trying to sit in the backdrop and notice everything that happens around the business during the day.
0: Okay, how do you do that without making it obvious that, hey, y'all have been around here for two weeks and aren't buying anything, or do you make like smaller purchases? Like, Walk me through that.
1: What a great question because it really got to the point where it was like, hey, um, while we're casing this place, we could very well be being cased. People go to work at the same time every yeah. day. Eventually, they're going to look over and see a red Maxima that has three guys in it. I would say two huge guys in me. Um, so, no, we would change our clothing. We would change our appearance. We would change the cars. My dad had three cars at the time. We would switch those out. So, it's almost an art form to sort of get the layout of what traffic will be like in and out of a store that was single standing. It wasn't attached to any other store. So, as we cased this, we knew by nine o'clock he took off his, he, he wore a cannon underneath his arm. He had a 45. Wow! You get shot by a 45. I mean, like that thing just shoots through everything, and it it frightened the hell out of me. And it was the first time we had to go in with guns, and my dad was the only one with a gun, and he had a 22, uh, much less than a 45. You can do the math at home, kids. So, um, we went in, um, and when he came out, um, he still had the gun on. So, uh, long story short, we inv- we walked away from that. And about a week later, we were watching the news and my dad came running down. And he said, put the news on, put the news on. And apparently the guy's best friend went in and shot him in the head.
3: Oh, oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, Cleaned out his entire store. Um, you can look all this stuff up. I actually have, I, I bought the newspaper articles of his trial. He's doing life in prison right now in Concord State Prison. Um, he was so dumb because um, he put everything in a duffel bag, including the murder weapon, including broken glass from the cases that he smashed to get the stuff out. The cops came to his house and two detectives were questioning him, while, questioning him while a uniformed officer was outside of his house watching. So during the interrogation, the guy says, I got to go to the bathroom, crawls out his bathroom window with the bag, goes to the neighbor's house, puts it under their porch. Now the cops don't even need probable cause. They don't need a search warrant. They can go over to the neighbors and say, hey, can we go under there and look? And they found uh, all of the jewelry, the broken glass, the murder weapon, and now James Ronco is, is away forever. Long story short, again, um, that made everything easier for us for the next five years. Mm. Nobody, like, the the third guy we robbed had the gun in his pocket, his back pocket, in a holster, buttoned, and the pocket was buttoned.
0: Now, I... I want to know how
1: many
2: times did you guys go to a bank or a jewelry store, sorry, jewelry store,
1: and go... It's
2: just not for us
1: that you had to just one time every time you felt like after two weeks or so, we're good to go. My dad was so mad. My dad was really mad after two robberies, that one and the first one that he tried without us. So so in my comedy, I just stand up comedy in my comedy. I said, you know, this is a situation where my dad decided my dad made the decision that he was going to cross that line well before he ever brought us over the line. And he did a robbery at the, uh, it was the Pheasant Lane Mall in Nashville, New Hampshire. He dressed up like a security guard. Um, his brother, God, do you hear the Boston? Oh, out? I for sure heard it right there. <laughs> it's you guys got to be talking Boston. Um, God, it's a I, wicked good story.
0: Though. I got to tell you
1: something. I first got to Texas and I have my Siri set to the English guy. And I said, uh, hey, Siri, uh, Lumba liquidators, directions, please. He said, uh, excuse me. What did you say? <laughs> really? I said, I said directions to Lumba liquidators. He's like, did you hurt your back? <laughs> I was talking about my lumbar. I said, no, uh, bring me to Lowe's. Um, my dad was furious after the first robbery because he sprayed the guy with mace. The guy fell on the case that my dad was supposed to get, and he couldn't get it out from under him. So we had to walk away from it, which prompted him to drive home and say, hey, you know what could help? <laughs> my son's. Um, and that's when he incorporated us in, in the, that robbery where we walked away and and it was very dangerous for all of us. My dad was very upset. So the third robbery was one of our biggest. It was the Burlington robbery. We knew everything about the guy. We knew everything about his car. His car had three locks on the back quarter panel. One of them opened the door. The other two set off the alarm. Once you open the trunk, it only opened about a quarter of the way and there was another padlock under there. So once we got the guy, <laughs> I tell this joke on stage that I stopped telling, which was, I taped this guy to a chair. And uh, unfortunately, there's no directions on the duct tape that tells you how much tape it takes to tape somebody to a chair. Yeah, Like, at sense. least they could have told me how much it takes a squirrel to tape to a chair. And I could have done the math and maybe <laughs> <laughs> Sure, <laughs> But I taped this guy so much to a chair that my dad had to tap me on the shoulder to get me to stop. It was the same tap I get from my ex-wife whenever I couldn't hit that spot like that's a joke I didn't <laughs> <tell>. <laughs> But somebody came up to me afterwards he's like hey that's a really funny joke I laughed but I don't want to think about you tying somebody to a chair. Mm. So we did this robbery and we ended up getting everything in the car and it was six full huge suitcases full. Like my house looked like something
0: Johnny Depp might
1: run into in Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs>
0: It's interesting. Sorry, I just wanted to ask a quick question. It's interesting you describe the different elements of, you know, just the robberies versus we had to tape this person up or tie this person up is like, obviously, you have gone through the time and everything like that. But did you feel different or, or feel bad or worse? If it was one of those situations where you directly came into contact with somebody that you're like, we have to tie this person or we have to tape. This uh, it, person was all, it was
1: all where my Catholic morality just got in the way. It just gets in the way. You can't be a robber and have any morality or ethics. <laughs> um, I will tell you that if, if you listen to the podcast, my brother was more of the ethical barometer. Like he would, he, after we did that first robbery and it was successful, my brother and I both just started to question, what are we doing here? like by the by by halfway through after 11 robberies and one of them was in the middle of downtown boston during christmas we were in the middle of downtown boston where everybody was everywhere and that was when jewelry stores do a lot of mailing and we knew a particular jewelry store in the jeweler's district was mailing stuff out to customers and the guy had to walk down to fedex so we were going to do the guy in fedex but then we realized that's probably federal time Let's not go that way. So let's take them outside of FedEx. But the robbery ended up being a bust. Like my 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 dad hit the guy. The guy dropped all the boxes. <laughs> I got so freaked out that I picked up the boxes and I handed them back to the kid. <laughs> like I wasn't gonna hold, I wasn't gonna grab them and run through downtown Boston on December 23rd. I just wasn't gonna do it. And luckily, because we would have got busted. Um, but yes, the, my brother and I were constantly questioning when does this end when do we stop
0: okay we got to take another break but i do want to come back if we can and just talk about like the end of this particular venture and then how you got to the other side with podcasting and writing books and everything like that we will be back next right here on 105 through the fan. KNC Masterpiece back here on 105.3 The Fan. right now, we are continuing our conversation with Brian Sobolewski. Is So, essentially, we're to the point, and correct me if I'm wrong, and by the way, in about 20 minutes, RJ and Sarah will participate in our roundtable of love, and then in an hour, we will decide the great Thanksgiving food bracket. Also, guess what's wedged in between that? Micah, Micah Parsons. Parsons. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of stuff happening. Now, wow. we're to the point... Where you are about to get caught, essentially, as that is my way of understanding, how did you get caught or when did you know that this was the only logical direction that was going to happen?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, I don't think for a single point during the five year period that we robbed stores that any of us think we were going to get caught, mostly because of my dad's assurance that we were doing the right thing, going after the right people. Uh, it was about halfway through in 93 when a composite drawing was done of my dad. Um, and my dad laughed. He's like, bro, wait till you see this thing. It doesn't look anything like me. And the second I saw it, I was like, oh, we're done. Because mm-hmm. it looked exactly like him. Like my dad thought these sketch artists, like we going to draw a stick figure yeah. with a smiley face and be like, try to catch this guy. Um, I, I was really afraid. And that's when my brother and I, the last two years, really just kept asking, how many more? How many more? And the takes from most of the robberies post-93 were, were less and less. People were getting much more savvy, and people knew that we were out there.
0: When you say less and less, I, you can tell me it's none of my damn business. What are we talking about?
1: Less and less money?
0: Yes. Uh, the, one of them, we ended up, we did a job. We ended up doing
1: a job that we knew that the, um, so when you go into a jewelry store, and there's two, there's two doors, mm-hmm. like there's a foyer in the middle. I want you to notice that you cannot get an arm's length between the doors. Like, you wouldn't be able to hold both doors open. That's a security measure, which basically means when one door closes and the other door closes, they can lock you in there. Mm-hmm. So if you rob the place and you're on your way out, that first door closes, they're going to hit a button, and you're in there in a bulletproof chamber until the cops come. Wow. So we knew this jewelry store had that. So we were just going to order a bunch of jewelry from the place, have it mailed, and then just hit the UPS driver. So we're sitting there, and I was always the lookout. And it's one of the jokes that I tell on stage. Everybody had really intricate jobs, and I was the lookout. Um, but I was sitting in a parking lot, and uh, we would using walkie-talkies. And my, my dad said, hey, whenever I ask you if the gravel's on the way, like I'm a construction guy, just say yes or no to say if cops are nearby. Like we had the secret code. Well, it turns out that the jewelry store had a police scanner and was picking up our (laughs) walkie-talkie transmissions. And the guy said, hey, you know what? Instead of sending out this $100,000 order of mailed stuff, I'm just sending out catalogs. And that's what we got. My brother robbed the UPS guy right outside the store. And we got uh, eight boxes of catalogs. So that's our worst Those are worthless. Absolutely. They really are. We tried to sell them on the street, yeah. five bucks a piece. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then from there, I, I would say that the Methuen robbery was probably one of the worst because uh, we we the a guy, a traveling salesman, was going into the store to meet with the owner, and we wanted to just hit the traveling salesman to make it look like the owner was in on it. Okay. And the traveling salesman didn't have much on him at the time. We didn't take anything from the store, so we probably walked away with about 25 grand. And that was that was probably one of the last. I think that might have been the last robbery, besides maybe Littleton, which was a decent take. I would say from Littleton, 150 grand on the street, which would be 500 um, retail. Yeah, yeah. But we ended up getting caught when my dad decided that he wanted to do a fake insurance robbery of the house. So he asked his girlfriend, hey, what did your house look like when yours was broken into? And she said some very weird... Has anyone had their house broken into before? Yes. Because they look... Yeah. So like the freezer was torn apart, correct? Or no? Uh, our whole apartment was just, just shredded. torn apart. Everything, yeah, yeah.
2: everything was flipped over and just, everything.
1: Yeah, weird things. Like, like oh, you make sure you take frozen stuff out because some people hide their stuff in the freezer. They went and- into the fuse box.
2: I had money. <laughs> I had cash taped into the fuse box and they opened the fuse box and took the cash out of the Yeah, because
1: you it. think you're so clever. Like, you think you're so yep. clever taping it to the back of something. And the thieves know. They're it, they know. And they have fingers. <laughs> they right. can feel things. Right. Um, so I tried to make it look like uh, we bad. had been robbed. And I I called the cops and the cops showed up. It was on Thanksgiving. Oh, Thanksgiving. Huh. Oh, anniversary. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I call the cops and he pulls up and, and I I my dad wanted me to specifically say that when I opened the door, I think I, I thought I heard something, as if somebody was still in there. Like he would that would make it more real. And okay. he was in Mexico at the time, sunning his butt. Uh while I reported this fake robbery. And as soon as the cop went in there, you know, eventually the place is swarming with cops. And one cop starts walking around. He had a couple of stripes on his badge. I don't know what the hell that meant. But he was like, you know, these people were in here for a very long time. And I'm like, at that point, I'm like, I'm afraid to ask how he knows. Like, how do you know how long these people were in here? But they knew right away something wasn't right. So I got a call from a detective, a Nashville police detective, and uh, he asked me to come in because he thought they knew who did it. I went in and he just started accusing me. And that's what the cops do. It's so funny because you watch the town and Ben Affleck is in the interrogation room acting quintessential
0: like- Quintessential Boston the
1: right quint- Yeah, and it's because the statistic that Charlestown guys never ratted because you can't ever rob a bank again. And ratting back then was just, it's so funny because the first person to rat is the one that says, I'll never rat. Right. Like that's the case, guys. Like, the, like there's no, there's maybe three people in prison right now in the history of prisons that are sitting there for not ratting. And they're they're pissed. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, I'd like to rat now that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can get out of here. But um, and and when all was said and done, after they arrested me, they they offered me to rat on my father and brother. And I thought to myself, you know, that's just gonna make the holidays weird. I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think I should do that. But uh, when he called me in t- for the insurance robbery, I knew right away when we were going down the road of, hey, we're not sure who did it. We think you did it. We think your brother did it. We think your dad did it. We think this person did it. And that's what they do. Ben Affleck is sitting in that room acting like such a, like, he's so bad. But you have to understand that the cops get you in there and then they, they don't even accuse you of the crime you they think you did. Like, I was accused of the Lincoln and the Kennedy assassination in the first 10 minutes right. and I copped to both of them. I was like, I did it. I'm sorry. But they, they freak you out so much that eventually you're like, no, I couldn't have done it that day because I was robbing a jewelry store in Somerville that day. And then you're busted. Like... I always say that that the fear of the blue wall comes from the fact that these guys have to be on the same level as the criminal to catch them. Yeah. They can, you can't be Superman and have ideals and then swoop down and beat evil. You just can't. You have to be evil. So so listen, I have a healthy respect for cops. I have a healthy fear for cops. There have been multiple evidence lists. There's been multiple um, pieces of property that I had that were all stolen that that they took back and it didn't end up on any list.
0: What was the outcome in terms of time jail? Okay, so dad got 12 years. Uh, Kev did
1: eight, but they ended up going back for two because he didn't like probation. So we all got probation afterwards. Kev decided he would rather do cocaine, um, and that just got in the way of of probation. So he violated, and they sent him back, and they were going to let him out on probation again. But by the time you've done eight years, two more years is nothing. Like, that's a con. Like, if you asked me to do two more years after my piffle three, no way I'll go kicking and screaming. I won't. I don't want to ever go back there. But some of these guys get institutionalized to the point where they're okay just sitting, doing time. And I ended up doing three, and I was in three separate lineups. you have never been in a police lineup. I don't recommend it. Um, every single movie that I've ever seen in my life, The Guilty Person was number five. So I'm laying in bed the night before my lineups being like, don't be number five. And guess what number I got for every lineup?
0: I'm going to uh, go five. Number it's five. five. Yeah, so five. Yeah. How five. come you got three and your brother got more?
1: Because basically, I got to say, like, the, the, the disparities, like, if you really want to see the the issue with race in America today, you have to look at the justice system. Because I went away for a crime that I should have done double digits for, and anybody of color would have done double digits for. I sat in prison with guys that were doing way more time for stuff that that was nothing compared to what we were doing and it came down to us being able to hire lawyers with cash and being white uh, i'm sorry i hate saying it but that's where you will see the disparity the most and i'm sorry like there's not a single criminal in the world that's like hold on can we all just sit down and look at the massachusetts general law book to find out what the consequences of this are like the, the crime well, the consequences are never considered prior.
0: Okay, and since you mentioned the consequences, and, like, I just really want to pull back the curtain here is we're, I'm looking at the fan text, and there are a lot of people who are obviously, like, riveted by your story, but there are also some people who are angry <laughs> that we are giving you the platform oh, to boy. speak, and I'm sure you go into this in your books, and your podcasts, and everything like that is you understand that point of view about people who are like, I would rather not hear this story. hundred percent. I'd rather not tell it.
1: But at sure. the same time, um, you know, I did so I did so much good with it in the first year. Um, I, I, One of the things that they tell you if you're going to sell a book is that they're like, we, we're not going to market it. You're going to market it. So please tell us, if you can't get on Oprah, how you would market this book. Well, uh, if you look at the statistics, 80% of the book buying public are educated females. So if you write down educated females I'm going to sell this to, uh, you're an idiot. I thought that if I talked to high school kids and I told my story and I was real with them, that that could start a dialogue with their family at home and they might want to look at the book as a tool to have an open discussion. And I talked to 16 different schools my first year. They were begging for me. Some of them were able to pay my expenses, but most of them I did it for charity because that's why I wrote the book. That's why I told the story. Everybody out there that's screaming that I shouldn't get the time, you're right, but... If I don't do something with this story, if I'm not able to use it to help people, then it just dies. It just dies. And and I didn't live this life for that. I could do what my my grandmother said to do is lie to everybody. Don't tell anybody you did this. But if I could use it as a way to help people, and in that first year talking to schools, it was a huge response. These schools need, as teachers, they can't tell their stories because they have to remain sort of anonymous. And to have somebody come in that that can just be real with the kids. I don't expect any of these kids to rob 22 stores, but at the same time, they just needed somebody to
0: say, hey. And tell everyone real quick that's been listening some of the names of the books and then how they can find your podcast again.
1: So the podcast is on Anchor right now, but it's on most platforms. Uh, Anchor will distribute the podcast to iTunes and, and any way that you look at podcasts. It's called the Family Jewels Podcast. There are four seasons. Season one is the 22 stores. Uh, detailing the robberies season two is the prison season three is the fallout and, and exactly what happened. I, I really drive home what it's like to be an ex-con in America guys. Cause this is, this is a huge problem. We have millions of people that can only landscape yeah. cook or personal train. Yeah. I mean, those are the only three options for you as an ex-con and it's a huge issue. And, and, and I think that, that we can use this force both in jail, got a bunch of people sit, we got 6 million people sitting around that could be cleaning the highways. Like We could use this force, and at the same time, um, there there needs to be more opportunities getting out of prison for people, because that's why the recidivism rate will never change.
0: Well, I appreciate hearing your story very, very much, good sir. Thank you for jumping on with us.
1: Who's on a date? You guys? Yeah. What's going on over here? You guys? What's going on over here? You're not on a date. You're not on a date? Are you related? Because I don't want to make (laughs) weird. No? You're just friends? Yeah. Okay. You're exploring shit? No. Alright. How old are you guys? I'm 24. Why did it take so long to answer? (laughs) And you, sir? 28. Okay. And you guys? 30s. 30. Okay. So, I just want to point out to you guys, I just started dating again at 52. And I want to tell you the difference between that and 52 this guy I had an ex-girlfriend stab me once at 25 and because I was getting laid regularly I stayed with her <laughs> no, I stayed with that chef when I was 30 I had a girlfriend that came up to me and said hey, if I bang you with a strap on is it gay? Like, yeah <laughs> hold on you're 25. Yeah. Tell me the definition of gay.
3: Um, you like the same sex.
1: Okay. So if if you bang me with a strap on, is it gay? Yes. Oh my god. Uh, Our future, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, maybe I'm I don't want to fight you. Um, I don't want to fight you. I wouldn't either. So at this point, at 52, I don't put up with shit. I don't remember, she, like she actually walked out with a strap on her, and I was like, I don't, know, I don't think I'm gonna do this. At 52, I swear to god, I went on a date the other night, chick was smoking, I was so attracted to her, but she left the car stereo volume on a prime number. <laughs> no? No, I almost pushed her out of the car and just kept going, man. No, fuck that, no way. Because it's it's so tough to date at this age, and it's very tough to date for me because I grew up Catholic. Anyone?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? A fucking
1: Catholic? <laughs> Alright, so for those of you that don't understand Catholics, um, there's a lot of guilt. I've always had a lot of guilt when it came to sex. I always had a lot of guilt about being naked. So I was a virgin until I was 23. 23 years. What? Woo? No. <laughs> 20- <laughs> Out how good sex was. I fucked so much, my dick looked like a burnt match. I swear, i like, this isn't good. What do I do about this? But the other, the other reason it's very difficult for me to date is because I'm an ex-con. Anyone else? Right.
3: Okay. (laughs)
1: Not yet, but you will be. Don't worry about it. It's coming. It's coming. You're you're on your way. But being an ex-convict is very, very difficult to date because at what point do I tell my date what what I've done and and have been to prison? and and I just do it on the first day. (laughs) I just bust that shit out on the first day. Um, The reason it's so difficult to date an ex-con is because I feel like I'm a little bit like one of Michael Vick's retired fighting dogs. (laughs) Uh, no, seriously. Here's the rule with those dogs. It's probably okay for you to leave them in a room full of other dogs. Ninety-nine times out of hundred, it'll be okay. On time one hundred, I will eat every dog in that room. I swear. <laughs> it's, it's just because when I grew up, I never knew how to deal with my anger. I have, like today, I have, At fifty-two, I have anger issues. Has anyone else ever flipped up? No, I did this today. I'm so fucking pissed. Is anyone over? No, I'm not gonna tell you guys that. I feel it it's like this oh, is like. No, I'm not telling you. It. Oh, no, I I'm not gonna tell you Tell us. Tell us. Do it. it. I stabbed a toilet paper roll because <laughs> it was spool under. It was spool under. Alright, guys. I'm not gonna take it. Like, listen. It's, I'm not fucking exhausted. Who here is over 50? You guys tired? Seriously, man. I just took my meds. i got to go home. So I'm going to leave you with this. When I went to prison, I went to prison with my family. That's what the Family Jews podcast is about. That's why you should listen to it. Because when somebody comes up to me and says, you should listen to my podcast, I'm like, yeah, I'd rather listen to old people eat. That's how I feel about that. But my podcast is about uh, how we all went to prison. And when we walked into prison, i got to tell you, I was so afraid of going to prison because look at me. Like, <laughs> I was so afraid. Like I started walking out every day, twice a day. till I realized, I'm probably just getting sexier. <laughs> <laughs> but when I went to prison, like my, my brother is twice my size, 250 pounds, he's all jacked, all up. And he walked on the prison block and he says, hey, it's full of earshot of everybody. If anybody's gonna do the fucking around here, it's gonna be me. Nobody touched me. Nobody touched me by association. So we were separated, and I went to a different prison. And I decided I was going to do the same thing. So I walked out on the prison block, and I said, hey, if anyone's going to do any fucking around here, it's going to be me. And I heard, oh my god, he's so cute.
4: Like others, I was fooled. In, I mean, I was a guest on his podcast. We literally sat in that doorway right there and talked about absolute shit for so long that I tried to fall asleep with my eyes open, hoping that I would dream that I wasn't there. Brian is a physical trainer. It should be obvious that neither Alex, nor Casey, nor I know what that is. But Brian is fit as hell. For Halloween, he's going to put a big dot right here on his crotch and dress up as an exclamation point. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Brian likes to yell at people and tell them to get
3: their
2: feet off the stage!
4: Which is pretty ironic coming from a guy who should never have, have had his feet on any stage anywhere, but people do laugh at Brian's comedy. I've met both of them.
3: <laughs>
4: and apparently, neither of them is here tonight.
3: They're making a movie
4: about the crowd reaction to Brian's comedy, the Silence of the Ham. <laughs> Brian is a Polish ham. By that I mean, I mean he's of Polish descent, and from the looks of him, they're not done descending. <laughs> if you lock Brian in a safe, would he? Would it become a pole vault?
3: is a joke
4: that is funnier than most of his material. (laughs) Let's be serious. If you take nothing seriously, if you take nothing from tonight's show and from the looks of you, you'll be taking everything that isn't nailed down. (laughs) The guilty one. Uh, I hope you'll take away this one thing from the, the event of Brian's departure. And that is that the square of the hypotenuse side <laughs> of a right triangle is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides, and I will fight anyone who says differently, and that is what tonight means to me.
2: <laughs> but I do have a few words about, about Brian. I'm gonna do this so I can look at you. Um, <laughs> If you've fuck you, <laughs> if you've known Brian more than fifteen minutes, um you know that he drives a Mustang.
3: <laughs>
2: that he inherited, he didn't even own it.
3: <laughs> Somebody they literally
2: had to kill themselves. <laughs> and he got it. Um, <laughs> His Instagram is full of weird, 12-second Mustang porn. <laughs> and it's just videos of his car. And he's obsessed with it. It's kind of like Carrie, but for white trash. I didn't understand why he was obsessed until he until showed me how he drives it. And that's really impressive. The most oppressive part is how he shifts gears with the shifter up his fucking ass.
3: <laughs> On the prostate.
2: <laughs> Tom, shut up. Tom, Tom's already mentioned that Brian has a podcast that seven people listen to. It's called The Family Jewels. And luckily you were saved from hearing about the joke about how it's not about his dick. <laughs> or I was taking a dump while he was telling that story. (laughs) I've listened to all the episodes because I was dumb enough to show him how to make podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say season one, fucking great. Talked about all the robberies. It was so fucking interesting how two of the three people did stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Season two. Suffering the consequences of all those robberies. That was really interesting. And what season three taught me is that Brian needs to go back to doing crime. (laughs) So that season four can make up for how fucking boring Brian is when he's not living a life of crime. (laughs) As you've heard, Brian's a personal trainer. (laughs) Sorry, I meant that to be serious.
3: He invented a
2: patented training method called the RAMP method. This is true, this is true. You can buy the book. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, What you may not know is that he was obligated to give it that title because his clients ended up disabled. (laughs) And most of the program is dedicated to finding handicapped spots <laughs> and ADA compliant bathrooms. <laughs> Insincerity. Brian should not be this normal. His dad was a fucking psychopath. His brother was unbelievably abusive. And his mother couldn't get out of the way of her own demons. Yet somehow, some way, Brian Sobolewski made it. He did it. He became the second funniest comedian <laughs> in Delray <laughs>